you know that my favorite thing to read as you're turning to 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll be in verses 14 and following. One of my very favorite things to read is American history. I, I read a lot of biographies. I, I like reading history. Uh, I read a story about a young man whose name is famous to you, even if his exploits are not. Um, born in a small town in Connecticut, uh, when the Revolutionary War was uh, reaching its beginning, uh, and we knew that that conflict was burgeoning, he volunteered for the Revolutionary Forces and quickly proved that he was not only a nimble soldier, but a great leader. And so he rose through the ranks and eventually became a general in Washington's army and one of his most trusted advisors, somebody that he appealed to in wisdom and for strategy over and over again. He fought valiantly in battle and won many on the side of the revolutionaries, and during one battle in the late 1770s, he was shot in the leg. Uh, tremendous pain, his leg would never quite be right again, but it sidelined him from battle, and he was given a number of jobs and posts that required him essentially being separated from the army, separated from the command and leadership structure, separated from Washington, separated from the battle and separated from essentially the war itself. He was so discouraged by being put aside and feeling forgotten that he started to think about what it would look like if he changed sides. And so after working out a plan with his wife, that's exactly what he strove to do. He reached out to the British Army and said, I'm unappreciated over here. I, I can't get a greater command. I can't get back on the battlefield. No one respects me. They don't adhere to the wisdom that I have to share with Washington and the rest of his advisors. I'm going to come and fight for you. And he worked out a cash deal, $20,000, if only he would give up assets and the knowledge that he knew about the Revolutionary Army. Well, the plan falls apart. He doesn't get paid. He's subsumed under the British Army, but as a very low-level flunky. He's so enraged by how he's been disrespected, not only as he has perceived by Washington and the revolutionaries, but now by the British Army, that he is furious, and his fury leads him to do unconscionable things. He's given a small number of troops and told to engage the revolutionaries in a small town in Connecticut just a few miles away from where he had grown up. And so he marches his troops in. They win decisively. The revolutionaries drop their arms and raise their hands, offering their full surrender. But unassuaged, this former revolutionary general looks on the soldiers alongside who he had fought just months earlier, and orders the British troops now under his command to open fire, killing all of them. Just a few miles from where he had grown up, he could look across the battlefield and see the faces of the fathers and sons that he had known growing up in that small valley in Connecticut. Now, does anybody want to venture who this man's name was? Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold. We know this name. This name is famous in American history. And if we were playing a word association game and I said, tell me the first word that comes to mind when you hear the name Benedict Arnold, my guess is that 90% of the people in the room would immediately go, traitor. He's a traitor. He was a traitor to the faith. 
I don't know what somebody over here just thought, but people are already laughing. Did you get it? Eggs? Eggs Benedict. I've got books. You're just going to get stuff. We're going to make you guys read some American history. You've been watching too much Food Network and uh, (laughs) too little History Channel. (laughs) Eggs Benedict. Let's close in prayer right now. Let's just be done. Traitor. He's a traitor. He's a traitor. Now, I want you to think about the passage that we have going here today. I'm going to read it for us here in just a moment. There are approximately 3,000 people whose names are recorded in the Bible. And I didn't know that. I had to Google it last night. So if you didn't know that, I don't want you to be ashamed about it. But there's about 3,100, 3,200 people mentioned in the Bible. The Bible took broadly about 1,500 years to write. So I want you to think about the nature of the canon, 1,500 years. That means that there are about two people for every year that it took to record the Old and New Testaments who are recorded for us, about two people per year in the history of the recording of the canon who are actually laid out here in Scripture. Now, we're going to run into two by name, and I want you to be looking for their names as we start reading here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Remind them, Paul says, of these things. Uh, Go ahead and flip back just for a moment to verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul is talking about ministry here, and he's instructing Timothy about how to proceed in ministry in Ephesus. Who is he to remind people or things of to? Well, he's to remind these people in Ephesus, these saints, elect by God that he is ministering to. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, we see an illustration given here, these two verses, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses 
and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. When I think of Benedict Arnold, instead of thinking eggs, I think traitor, right? And when I think of Hymenaeus and Philetus, I think traitors. It's shocking in a sense. If you think about it just for a moment, that Paul goes out of his way on a handful of occasions to name names. That seems really against the sensibilities of people in 2020. We, we just want to be nice to everyone. We don't want to upset anybody. That's not what Jesus is like. He's just so loving. And, and yet Paul tells us on a number of occasions that when there are people who teach false doctrines, who convey something contradictory to what we find in Scripture, it's important that we call them out. And that's exactly what he does here. Of all the people whose names are recorded in Scripture... Paul, under the supervision of the Holy Spirit, thought it was important enough to call out these two. Now, they've got a very specific heresy that's listed here. It says that what they're saying will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who swerved from the truth. And if we're trying to pinpoint the damning condemnation of what has plagued these two, Hymenaeus and Philetus, it is that they have swerved from the truth. They are no longer nimbly handling the word of God. They are no longer listening to the apostles and the teachers sent by God. They are no longer concerned with exactly executing life according to the way that God has revealed. They are concerned with spreading their own philosophies, their own agendas, and their own erroneous interpretations of Scripture. They have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. Uh, now, we're, we're not talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Second Timothy is one of the last letters, if not the last letter that Paul writes. This is being written probably in the mid to late 60s A.D. Jesus has already been resurrected for over three decades. We're not talking about the resurrection of Jesus. We're talking about the resurrection of the saints from the dead at the second coming of Jesus. Hymenaeus and Philetus are apparently going around Ephesus and maybe other places, and the message that they're preaching is, oh, hey, by the way, you know when Jesus said that he would come back? Well, he's already come back. And you know how he promised to take all of us with him to catch us up in the twinkling of an eye so that we might be with him forever? Well, you're still here, so what does that say about you? And so Paul says here, sort of subtly, but we understand the impact, that it was upsetting to the faith of some. No, duh, right? If I got up here this morning and I said, oh, by the way, the rapture happened yesterday and all you pagans are left here, that might be upsetting if anyone actually had the goal to believe me when I said such a foolish thing. Now, some of you, maybe we would understand why you've been left, but there are some holy ones scattered around here, here and there in the corner, right? We would be really curious about why they're not being taken up. It's upsetting to the faith of some. They're distracted by these foolish controversies. You, you see here in verse 14, uh, Paul tells Timothy to charge those saints under his ministry not to quarrel about words which does no good. Verse 16, to avoid irreverent babble. Verse 18, they have swerved from the truth. Verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Verse 24. These are a 
people who are distracted, Hymenaeus and Philetus. They're not focusing on the main things. They're not trying to understand Scripture. They're trying to indulge all of these simple thoughts way here in the back of their minds, things that they have made up, that they have generated themselves. They are consumed with their own philosophies, their own agenda, their own ideas, and they're not focused on Scripture. They're distracted. But maybe even worse than being distracted, they're distracting. They're having a negative impact on all the people around them. He says in verse 14, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. It's evocative language that Paul uses here of those who draw people away. Verse 16, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. They are upsetting the faith of some. You know that they breed quarrels, he says in verse 23. What they do isn't just affecting them. It's affecting all the people around them. It's causing them to question the faith that has been handed down through the generations. And the end of that is it leads to unholiness. It's not just that they're spreading bad ideas. It's that their bad ideas are leading to bad living. Now, this is just a great principle for everybody through the ages of the church and into 2020. If the preaching or teaching under which you're sitting does not cause you, or at least does not call you, to live more like Jesus, but it allows you and, and frees you to live less like Jesus, run away. There's an awful lot of what we might call cheap grace out there. This is really popular, I feel like, for those people, uh, millennials in particular, who question their own identity and want to have every action that they choose, every choice affirmed that you're all right, that you are inherently good, that the answer to all of your problems is within your own heart. And that what we need to do as, as Christians is just to love them, affirm their decisions, uh, make much of their choices, that what's right for them is right for them, and what's right for us is right for us. But this is not a call to holiness. This isn't what Scripture teaches. The Bible teaches that your heart lies to you, and that without the supervision of the Holy Spirit, who is employing the Word in our lives, we end up doing really foolish, terrible, hateful, awful things. If you are not subject to the word of God, which calls you to the standard of holiness, modeled by Jesus Christ, then you will invariably do awful, evil things. And any preaching or teaching, any book, any Bible study, any alleged friend, any mentor who tells you, you just be you, you have all of the answers, you're going to be all right. They're not being loving to you. They're being unfathomably cruel to you. Because the model for living is found exclusively here in God's word. And it's modeled to us by those who pursue likeness of Jesus Christ. 
Be holy as God is holy. Distracting people by talking about vain, boring, nothing, unbiblical, irrelevant, babbling things will encourage people to follow a path that leads to destruction. And that's exactly what they've done. It's something we saw repeatedly in our study of Hebrews, right? So some have swerved from the truth. Uh, if there was a big idea for a passage like this one, I know I'm giving it a little bit late here in the game, it's that only by being in right relationship to the Word can we be ready to do what God has called us to do. Only when we use this book, only when we do what Paul calls Timothy to do, that is to do your best to present yourself as one approved by God, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. It's only then, only when you apply all of your energy and all of your affections to understanding how God has revealed himself in this book and how we are then to live it out that we can really do and be equipped to do what God has called us to do. You are never going to have an impact for the kingdom of God if you have not first prepared yourself by inundating your heart and your mind with Scripture. You will be perpetually frustrated. You will walk around aimless. You will have no mission. Your agenda will be thwarted. You will achieve no great thing ever for God's purposes unless you first find the supplies that you need and the perspective that you need that the Holy Spirit will use from this book. I know people who will say to me occasionally, you know, I just, I really want to make a big difference. I want to do something. I want to be an exciting ministry. We need to get something going here. And the pronouns start to change in the middle of this conversation. It goes from, ah, I'm just really frustrated. I'm just really, man, we don't do anything like that. Why don't we do? And then the pronouns change again. Well, how come you're not doing this? How come you're not? Okay, okay, okay. Where do we start here? What, what's your personal devotional life like? Uh, you've told me you want to teach the Bible. How are you teaching yourself? Well, you know, it's really pretty terrible. And red flags right here, right? <laughs> if you are not teaching yourself, we're never going to let you teach anybody else. If you're not filling up here, uh, we understand that you cannot impart what you do not personally possess. We need this book and all of the wisdom and glory therein to be able to be equipped to do what God has called us to do. Uh, we need to take just a moment here to talk about uh, one little word, uh, orthotomeo. It, it occurs right here um, in uh, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling the word of truth. Now, I'm sure somebody in here has a King James Bible, and it reads this, right? It reads, rightly dividing the word of truth. Um, now, w when I was a kid, my uh, grandfather had a book on the shelf, and it was written by an old dispensational scholar named Clarence Larkin. And he had a book called Dispensational Truth, and he had another one called uh, Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth. And he took this term here from 2 Timothy chapter 2, and he said, I, let, let me tell you what that word really means. It's all about how do we chop up Scripture in just the right way so that we understand one dispensation, one era as distinct from the others. Well, that's not really what that word means at all. It means rightly handling, rightly using, correctly applying what it is that we find here in this word. 
So it's not talking about chopping up the Bible to reinforce the various tenets of dispensationalism, nor does it mean, I think have, as some have uh, pondered through the years, uh, well, we need to accurately handle the word of truth. And, and so the interpretation that they give of this particular word is that we need to be so exceedingly precise that we are consumed with all of the exegetical minutiae and well, that's true. The, that's important. It's important that we get the word right. But they miss the sense of this word, of its usefulness, that we want to correctly use, that we want to adeptly handle, that we want to actually make actions emerge from what we have learned from this book. It's not just about understanding the text with accuracy and tenacity, it's about applying the text. It's about obedience, just as much as it's about exegesis. And what Paul tells Timothy here is that if he will correctly use the word, if this orthotimeo, to use correctly, is applied to his own life, if he will avail himself of what's actually in this book, then he's going to have four particular blessings that will emerge out of his ministry. There were four particular blessings that will emerge if Timothy will apply himself and study arduously to prove himself as one who needs not be ashamed adeptly and accurately using and applying the book that has been given to us. Number one, it will free him to focus on the agenda of God. It will free him to focus on the agenda of God. What's one of the condemnations that's leveled against Hymenaeus and Philetus, right? They, they quarrel about these words. They are involved in irreverent babble. They've swerved from the truth. They're foolish. They're caught up in ignorant controversies. They're quarrelsome. They're picking fight after fight after fight, and they're riling up the people of God about stuff that is not only true, but certainly does not matter. How many times have we seen in the history of the church that even true things get made the most major important thing of all time, right? And it consumes everything else around it. Uh, when I first came to Rocky Mount Bible, there was a man who visited from a local broadcasting station, and he uh, became livid with me because in those early days of my time here at Rocky Mount Bible, uh, I wore khakis, I had a button-down shirt, and it was tucked in, I had on a tie, and I had on a sport coat. But I'm a big boy, and it's the South, and it's the middle of summer, and I said, uh, hopefully you won't mind if I take off my sport. And I took off my sport coat, and I laid it over the banister here, and I got back to preaching and teaching. And I thought what I preached was my best understanding of the passage at hand. And as soon as the service was over, the gentleman walked to the door, and he was greeted by a member of our congregation. He said, hey, uh, it was so nice to see you this morning. Can we expect to see you again? No, I'll never be back. Well, why is that? Well, uh... Your preacher had the audacity to take his jacket off while preaching the Word of God. That was a deal breaker, right? Uh, I remember a few years earlier when I was in college, there was a very independent, capital F, fundamental Baptist church that invited me to preach. And uh, I got ready one morning in college. I had uh, only preached a couple of times before, and I showed up that morning, and the senior pastor told me, there's no need for you to preach. And I had on black pants, and I had on a, my little sport coat, and I had on my tie, and I said, well, what's the problem? And he goes, you're wearing a blue shirt, and blue shirts are distracting. Black pants, black jacket, white shirt, black tie. That's how we do this. 
And I was like, man, this guy really likes men in black, <laughs> right? Uh, maybe he works for a morgue or something. What's going on here? I don't understand. This is and this was a deal-breaker issue that I could have gotten up, Spurgeon asking, and proclaimed the glory of God. Not very important. What was really important? Color of your shirt. It's really easy to get distracted by things that don't matter. It's really easy to get distracted by untruthful things, but you can even do this with wonderful, truthful things. And get so consumed with the minutia, and get co so consumed with the tertiary arguments that we forget the great glorious thing that's right in front of our face. Uh, a couple of years before I got to Dallas Seminary, there was an argument in the cafeteria, and there was one guy on this side of the room who was a Calvinist, and a guy on this side of the room who, were, uh, who was Arminian, and they literally got into a fist fight in the middle of the cafeteria. Trays, flying drinks being spilled on the table, punching each other. We had a professor at the time who was about seven feet tall, and he had to come over and just grab the two knuckleheads and just push them apart, just hold them apart because they were fighting over Paul says, I handed down to you what has been possessed through the ages, that Jesus Christ has come to save us from our sin by his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and he will come again and bring all his holy saints along with him to rule in the eternal day forever. Right? There's the gospel. Be really careful with how you handle Scripture, but also be really careful that we don't make tertiary things the great plain thing right in front of our faces. Jesus Christ, all glorious and fully alive. By focusing on the word, by rightly handling the book, Timothy's going to be able to avoid all that stuff. He's going to be freed up to focus on God's agenda, sharing the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that makes sinners whole, that they may stand in the presence of a holy God. Secondly, if he will rightly use this book, if he will correctly apply this book, it will mold him into worthy service for God. It will mold him into worthiness of service for God. Uh, verses 20 and 21, I think, are the most unusual verses in the entirety of this particular passage that we're in today. Uh, there's a great house, and there's vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay. Some are honorable, and some are dishonorable. And he says you need to clean yourself here. Um, now, I'll tell you, it's the most uh, misinterpreted verse, verse 20, right? Honorable vessels, dishonorable vessels. It's the most misinterpreted verse in all of 2 Timothy. And it's misinterpreted so egregiously because nobody reads verse 21, which explains it for you, all right? Uh, now, also, there's another barrier here because we don't speak of vessels in our house being honorable or dishonorable. So uh, just an illustration here for a moment. Uh, imagine that Corona is over, and the way that you're going to celebrate is that you're going to have a big party in your house, and, and you've invited a hundred people over, and there's going to be an absolute feast, and all your friends are there helping set up. It's just a couple of hours away. Everyone's going to be packed in, and there's going to be singing, and it's going to be a huge party. And your kid runs up to you and says, hey, how, how can I help? And you say, well, you know, we're going to have punch. We're going to have a big, giant punch bowl, right? And we're going to have the same ladle just laying on. This seems unreal in Corona era, right? We're going to share this big ladle, and everybody's going to drink out of But this is what we're going to do. We're going to have a big, big punch bowl, and we're going to make punch, and we're going to make it the right way, you know, with 7-Up and fruit punch and sherbet, and it's going to be great, right? So go find the biggest bowl that you can find. 
and a uh, little one takes off, and he runs through the house, and he comes back a few minutes later, and he goes, all right, I found the biggest container I could find, and, and there is grandma's old bedpan, right? <laughs> oh, no, we can't use that. Don't you, that, that thing is, I don't know the life, grandma died 10 years ago. I don't know that it ever got clean, and here we have this. It's a vessel for dishonorable use, right? And I would surely never use it to serve well, now I think it would be really hilarious to buy one of these sterile and serve punch out of it, right? But I would surely never use this thing unless what? Unless we had scrubbed the living tar out of it, right? I mean, bleach and everything else, we had just scrubbed it absolutely clean. This is similar to the imagery that's being laid out here in verses 20 and 21. Some of you are so marred, so disgusting, so dishonorable, so tainted by what? False teaching. False teaching like that of Hymenaeus and Philetus. You've bought into heresies and controversies and irrelevant and irreverent babbling. And all that needs to be called out. We need to bleach spray all of that (laughs) before you can be used. But if you will do that, if you will rid yourself of all of those ignorant, foolish babblings, then you can be used for the purposes of God. If you will rightly situate yourself in accordance to what this book has to say about how to live the life that Jesus has called us to live, then you'll find the desire inherent to be cleaned by the Holy Spirit, to be cleaned, to be used for God. This book molds us into worthiness so that we can serve God. And I love how he says this in verse 21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, He'll be a vessel honorable for use, set apart as holy, useful to the master, ready for every good work. So here's the operative question just for a moment here. Do you need to cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable this morning? Do you need to cleanse yourself from the things that the world says are okay, but the Bible says are terrible? Do you need to cleanse yourself from impure thoughts and impure deeds and unholy thoughts and deeds from all the disgusting, vile things that our heart generates apart from the Holy Spirit. Do you need to cleanse yourself this morning? Are you in a place of honorable use? Have you sang, like Lisa played this morning, Lord, make me holy so that I can be used by you? Are you useful to the master of the house? Are you ready for every good work? Or are you clinging to something that's holding you back? Paul tells Timothy, clean it all out. Gut it. Scrub it down for the glory of Jesus Christ so that he can use you. Thirdly, it not only frees him to focus on the agenda of God, it not only molds him into worthiness for the service of God, it will help him engage the world with the heart of God. It will help him engage the world with the heart of God. Uh, Take a look here at verse 23. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith. Those things seem like things that just affect me. But look how it goes on the list here. Love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Being renewed, being cleaned for God's purposes has an effect on the people around you. It helps you relate and minister to them. If Timothy is going to have any kind of impact in Ephesus, he's going to have to get clean first. But if he does get clean, 
if he does become an honorable vessel acceptable for the use of God, unashamed by how he's handled this book, then he's going to have the opportunity to have an impact on the people around him, the likes of which he hasn't seen before. If you will root out in your life those things which we are holding on to that makes us dishonorable, and you will clean them out of your life, you'll find that opportunities in ministry will present themselves to the other folks who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll get to serve more. You'll get to minister more. And you'll get to minister in love and faith and peace. He says here in the second half of verse 24, be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, even correcting his opponents with gentleness. I'm not naturally peaceable. I'm not naturally loving. I'm not naturally kind. I'm naturally sarcastic, right? I need the Holy Spirit to help me because sarcasm is not a great asset in the pursuit of ministry to Jesus Christ. It's not. (laughs) I need the Spirit to come in and clean my heart so that I can be peaceable and loving and kind. Talk about an era in which we maybe need to reemphasize this particular phrase, but kind to everyone including the people who disagree with you about whether to wear a mask or not wear a mask or vote for the president or not vote for the president or be kind to everyone. It will help him engage the world and see how to do that with the heart of God. Fifthly and finally, I think it's absolutely fascinating here how the passage concludes. Correcting your opponents with gentleness God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. He has just publicly and for all time named names with Hymenaeus and Philetus and he says to Timothy, if you will devote yourself to the word, if you will prove yourself handling this word correctly, adeptly, applying it to your life, unashamed before God of how you have handled this book, then it's possible. It's possible that even your opponents, even the people who are a thorn in your side, even the people who hate your guts and cause you grief and cause you to lose sleep, it is possible that if you will engage them with gentleness, that maybe they'll turn around from service to Satan himself and by the mercy of God be renewed to his purposes. Uh, There's a group called the Evangelical Theological Society. And every couple of years, I'll send in my membership and get the dues and get the journal. And they have an annual conference every year. And uh, they have a very, very short doctrinal statement that you have to hold in order to become a member of the Evangelical Theological Society. You have to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, and you have to believe in a traditional definition of the Trinity. I think these are the two things you have to affirm to become a member of the Evangelical Theological Society. Now, uh, years ago, 10 or 15 years ago, there was a man, a prominent scholar, a professor at a major international seminary who espoused a particular doctrine which is contrary to the Word of God. And uh, he had accrued some followers behind him. And so uh, the president of another seminary, a leading evangelical scholar and thinker, got up to the lectern at the annual meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society in front of thousands of professors and pastors and professionals in ministry 
um, and rebuked this man for his bad theology. But not with gentleness. It was so abrasive. It was so definitive. It was so angry and personal and violent the way that he attacked not only this man's errant theology, but the way he attacked him as a human being. The man sat there in front of the gathered assembly and wept. And everyone felt so bad for him that they couldn't vote him out. What would have happened if one of the leading evangelical scholars of the day had got up with the gentleness and presented a case from Scripture so thorough, so overwhelming, so pervasively biblical that the entirety of the room, including this errant individual, would have had no other choice but to see the point that, yes, in fact, that he was wrong, that the Bible was right, and the, the truth was being shared lovingly and gently and patiently here in the presence of all these people who have been gathered. I have never seen anyone abused into correction. Not once in my life. I have never seen anyone berated into holiness. Now, I, I've seen guilt do uh, a, a powerful work to get people to change their behavior. You can motivate people with guilt for a very short period of time. But the Spirit changes hearts, and the Spirit changes hearts through the Word. And the Word is distinctively, as modeled through Jesus Christ, gentle and patient. It's extraordinary that after having called out traitors whose names have endured through the generations, that there is at least the possibility that Timothy did exactly what Paul asked him to do here, and that maybe I'm wrong about Hymenaeus and Philetus. Maybe they're not the great traitors that have emanated down through the last two millennia. Maybe through the ministry of Timothy, they saw the error of their ways, embraced the doctrine that is so clearly taught in Scripture, and worked alongside Timothy and others until their dying day when they were called home to Jesus Christ. Not having any additional information about them, it's hard to say. But I think the possibility is exhilarating. You may have people like that in your life. Opponents. People who teach bad doctrine. People who are not about the gospel of Jesus Christ but are distracted by any number of false things. Right? Let me encourage you to be gentle with them. This is one of the great benefits of handling this word well. It may be that your greatest opponent will one day be transformed by God into your greatest ally and that we will march forward arm in arm to do what God has called us to do. But all that is possible, and only possible, if we stick to this book. We learn some interesting things about God here, then. We learn that he requires the kind of servant who has a high regard for holiness and who uses this book to prepare themselves. He says... I know those who are mine. Right? Did you notice that? Uh, go ahead and just take another look at that. I love that in verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. 
The Lord knows those who are His. Uh, that should probably bring back to you, I think it's uh, John chapter 10, right? The shepherd knows his sheep. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord then depart from iniquity. The Lord knows who are His. The Lord knows who He can use. The Lord knows who is honorable. The Lord knows who should be unashamed of the way that they handled this book. He knows. And those are His. And He is the steadfast anchor who keeps pulling us back from dishonorable use into honorable use by the glory of His Word and the power of His Spirit. Father, I pray this morning that we would have a high regard for Scripture, that we would not only understand in explicit detail what it says, but that we would wisely and nimbly apply it to the way that we live. Help us to be thoroughly knowledgeable and imminently obedient. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.